Welcome to the Doctor-Patient Forum, a no-holds-barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. We hope you enjoy the podcast you're about to hear. We do want to give you a trigger warning that we will be talking about suicide today due to untreated pain. If you are struggling with thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. There is a suicide or mental health hotline 988. I believe you could text or call or call 911. It was about 10 days after the accident when the after effects of the electrocution really started to show up. It's not a headache. The pain is just unbearable. I have these these sensations like my brain is loose inside my skull. If I turn my head too quickly left or right, it feels it feels like my brain sloshes around. Um, I, I don't know how else to describe that part. My eyes, not like eyebrows or cheekbones, but literally my eyes burn deep into my, my skull. I mean, my eyes hurt so bad that it hurts to blink. In March of 1991, Danny Elliott was electrocuted for about 15 minutes straight. It left him in severe chronic pain, which doctors said would eventually go away. You know, this will go away. You know, it'll get better. This is just the after effects. You know, it'll get better. But it didn't. And weeks turned into months. Until finally, he made a decision. To end my pain, the only way I knew how, and that was going to be, unfortunately, to end my life. Because I could not, I wasn't getting any relief, and I could not live with that pain anymore. Uh, Even though I had, you know, a wife and uh, a family and, you know, nephews that I loved a lot. And I didn't think there was anything else out there that could relieve my pain. I was going to end everything. I was going to put an end to it. Around this time, his family asked him to try out a new doctor. And I go to that appointment. And my life changed that day. That's when he talked to me about the fentanyl patches and the fentanyl lozenges. Uh, Fentanyl patches for long-term pain and the lozenges for breakthrough pain, short-term relief. At this point, I had never heard the word fentanyl in my life. I didn't know that this drug even existed. For over 15 years, Danny had some relief and was able to live his life again. But then, in the summer of 2018, he finds out his doctor has been arrested. And the day I lost him, I was in shock. At first, I thought it was just maybe a, not as serious as it, as it ended up being. I just thought maybe it was a bump in the road. But then when I learned more about the charges and everything, which are absurd, I knew that I had lost a doctor. And that was the beginning of a very, very difficult stretch for me, um, trying to find a doctor. As many of you may heard, we had a horrific tragedy in the chronic pain community. Danny Elliott and his wife lost their lives a few days ago to double suicide. Danny was a chronic pain patient for over 20 years, and he lost his doctor to the DEA for, I believe, it was the fourth time. Danny reached out to me a few months ago. I had seen some tweets that he had done mentioning that he was possibly going to the street. So I actually messaged him to make sure he had harm reduction resources. And he told me what his story was. And he let me know that he had done a podcast not that long ago where he told his story about uh, what it was like to lose his doctor and how it happened. And he asked me to promote this podcast and I hadn't really done it yet. I just hadn't gotten around to it. And I feel horrible that I hadn't done it yet. 
I'm going to play his podcast here. It is American Terror Vice News, I think, called Painkiller, America's Fentanyl Crisis, Episode 5, The Happiest Thing Ever. I'm not going to play the entire thing because it, it was with some other people and some history into fentanyl, and I don't want to have all that in here, but I want you to hear Danny's story from his mouth and what it was like when he lost his doctors for the first few times. And then we're going to talk about what happens when the DEA shuts down a doctor's office. What happens to the patients? What happens to their medical records? Do they find another doctor? Does the government have any kind of program that helps them? And does the government say they have any kind of program that helps them? These are all things we have talked about already, but I want to talk about them here also. So first, I'm going to play Danny's podcast so you can hear what he went through. And then we'll discuss the other things. I also want to read to you some things from Danny's messages to me and some recent tweets that Danny made after he lost this last doctor. Um, to Danny's family, we are so sorry for your loss. And uh, just know that we're going to continue to fight so that hopefully this doesn't happen to anybody else. I guess for starters, can you just state your full name? Yes, uh, I'm Danny Elliott. Where are you from? Uh, Warner Robins, Georgia. Uh, I literally was born and raised here, yes. It's the hometown of a very large Air Force base. It's about a population of about 100,000. It's a good place to grow up, a good area. Through his mid-20s, Danny had only taken prescription painkillers a few times right after surgery. Then, one night, when he's 29... The exact date was March 3rd of 1991. He has an accident that changes his life. Danny's over at his mom's place, helping her out around the house. This tropical depression or something had come over the southeast, over middle Georgia area, and just stalled. And it was raining like I've never seen it rain before. I mean, it was raining a lot. His mom's basement has flooded, so Danny and his dad use a couple electric pumps to suck the water into buckets and dump them outside. They work all night. Danny's using a broom to push the water toward the pump. And at one point... Apparently, I was going to reach for the broom, and an arc came up from the pump, uh, from the electrical pump, and hit me, and I collapsed on top of it. I had uh, a burn on my chest directly over my heart. That arc is an electric shock. Even though Danny's dad is just on the other side of the room, he can't hear Danny scream for the roar of the electric water pumps. His dad estimates it took about 15 minutes to turn around and realize what had happened. As he walked around the corner to where I was, he said I was doing a, a little bit of like a Superman thing. I was going stiff and then limp. Stiff and then limp. Stiff and then limp. Stiff and then limp. Danny's dad unplugs the pump, stopping the electricity. And he rolled me off of the chair and onto my back, and he says that I wasn't breathing, and he couldn't find a heartbeat, so he started doing CPR. So you you had no heart rate. You you basically died for a minute, it sounds like, in that basement. Yeah. That's what my dad says. He said I was dead. He said I was EMTs managed to revive him. He ends up spending three agonizing days in the intensive care unit. I don't know how else to describe the pain. It was just a, a severe throbbing in my head. And then anytime I tried to move my, my, my body, uh, just the, the muscles, the pain was just white hot kind of pain. When Danny leaves the hospital, he thinks his injuries will heal and life will go back to normal. Because that's what the doctors have told him. Before his injury, Danny had been working as a traveling sales rep for a pharmaceutical company. Days on end, it was unbelievable. Changed who I am. I think it changed my personality because being in that kind of pain, uh, it's it's difficult to think of the future when you're when pain, you know, when the months turned into years and then the years just kept growing and growing. It gets so bad that Danny can't leave the house anymore. 
Just being outside in daylight makes his head hurt. Over the next few years, he sees doctor after doctor after doctor. They try everything. But, you know, and the doctors would, would prescribe physical therapy or they'd prescribe going to see a psychiatrist. That, that happened. I was put on antidepressants, except for pain management. I mean, except for treatment of pain. And again, still, the acupuncturist, after six months, he's the one that told us not to do anymore because it wasn't helping, uh, as did the hypnosis guy and the chiropractor. And all the doctors would say, you know, this is probably going to go away. It's probably going to get better. One day you're going to wake up and you're going to feel better. And I'm still waiting for that day. Still waiting. 28 years. Some of those doctors don't even believe that Danny's pain is real. Oh, I, I didn't encounter just skepticism. I encountered a few doctors who flat out told me they thought that I was, I didn't even know what the word malingering meant at the time. I had to look it up. I was told I was malingering. I was faking it. I just, I didn't want to get better. Even Oxycontin, the first painkiller he's prescribed, doesn't work. I can tell you exactly, um, and in fact, that is the point where I was at my worst. When I left that doctor's office and she just wanted to increase the medication after I told her that it wasn't working for me, and I threw those prescriptions away, I had reached the point right then where I wasn't going to be able to live with this anymore. I had, I had reached the point that I was going to start making arrangements to end my pain the only way I knew how, and that was going to be, unfortunately, to end my life. But right around this time, his family asked him to talk to one more doctor. A neuropsychiatrist named Thomas Sack prescribes him fentanyl. And when I got the prescriptions filled, and after a day, after a few hours of use, I had gotten pain relief for the first time in 10 plus years. And it was, it was a lifesaver. It was an absolute lifesaver. I was ecstatic. I was so happy. There was a medication that could turn, I call it turn the volume of my pain down from a eight or nine or even 10 sometimes to a, a six or a five. The pain doesn't get much lower than that, but for me, that's almost pain-free. It was the happiest thing I've, I've ever experienced in my life, ever. The happiest thing ever. I saw, I, I think it was 25 doctors in the first two years, and I did acupuncture for six months on my own. Uh, we found somebody that did hypnosis. We went through hypnosis. I forget how many rounds of hypnosis there was. Uh, just trying to find something to relieve the pain a little bit, uh, went to a chiropractor. I was put on antidepressants. Um, just every kind of treatment you can possibly imagine. There are some people who only seem to get relief from opioids. I'd never heard the word fentanyl in my life. I didn't know that this drug even existed. And after a day, after a few hours of use, I had gotten pain relief for the first time in, in 10 plus years. As overdose deaths started to increase in the mid-2000s, there was a backlash against prescription painkillers. So the DEA tightened up on the supply, and there was a backlash against doctors prescribing opioids. That's what happened to Danny Elliott's doctor. He spoke to me like I knew what I was dealing with, like I had some intelligence. I mean, he didn't talk down to me. He didn't talk over my head. He didn't talk around me. He spoke right to me. The doctor who first prescribed fentanyl for Danny was named Thomas Satchel. He asked me about my pain, and I was able to describe it to him, and he not just believed it, he understood what I was feeling. But in 2018, the U.S. Department of Justice started cracking down on doctors suspected of prescribing opioids to people who didn't need them. This year, we're charging 601 defendants, including 76 doctors, 23 pharmacists, 
19 nurses and other medical personnel with more than $2 billion in healthcare fraud. Much of this fraud is related to our ongoing opioid crisis. That was then Attorney General Jeff Sessions in June 2018. One of the doctors arrested in that takedown he's talking about was Dr. Thomas Sachi, Danny Elliott's doctor. Danny is adamant that, as far as he knows, Sachi did everything by the book, that he wasn't running a pill mill. In fact, when he first prescribed uh, back in 2002, at every monthly appointment, there was a, uh, a urine drug test that I had to submit to the entire time that I saw him. Danny says Sachi checked his pill supply to ensure he wasn't selling his meds for profit. Sachi did prescribe Danny a lot of fentanyl. But Danny says that's only because his condition requires a high dose. What really bothers Danny is that the DEA doesn't seem to care about what happened to Dr. Sachi's patients after they arrested him. And the day I lost him, I was in shock. With Sachi in jail, Danny has to find a new doctor. At first, I thought maybe it was a bump in the road. But then when I learned more about the charges and everything, which are absurd, I knew that I had lost a doctor. Sachi was arrested two days before Danny was supposed to see him. And that was the beginning of... A very, very difficult stretch for me, um, trying to find a doctor and get treatment. The DEA put out a list of pain clinics in the area, but Danny couldn't get an appointment. Um, it was terrifying. It was ter- it was awful. It was so bad. I mean, not just the pain. The pain was is as bad as I can, you know as I can possibly even try to explain. But then to have those withdrawal symptoms on on top of that, the withdrawal part. I, I mean, I guess that's the best word to use for it. That's pretty easy to describe. I mean, sweating, you're going to the bathroom quite often. That is, I mean, your nose is running like crazy. I mean, you're exhausted, but you can't sleep. You know, it it makes me realize, I assume that's what, like, heroin abusers go through or whatever. At this point, Danny had been on opioids for so long that his body needs them to function normally. That's called dependence, which is different than addiction. Dependence means you've built up a tolerance, which happens to everyone who uses opioids. Addiction means you keep using drugs even though you know they're hurting you. And that only happens to a minority of people who use opioids. Dependence and addiction often go hand in hand. But people like Danny can use opioids like fentanyl without getting addicted or having it hurt them. Instead, opioids allow him to function. But with his doctor arrested, Danny was suddenly cut off from fentanyl. Danny saw one doctor after another, but none of them would prescribe him fentanyl at the dose he'd been on before. For the most part, I mean, I had a doctor laugh. I had a doctor, um, like, sit back in their chair and shrug their shoulders, and, you know, he said, you know, well, I can't do that. Without fentanyl, Danny was in constant pain and back on the verge of suicide. When he finally found a doctor willing to treat him, that person was in Houston, so Danny had to fly there from his home in Georgia. And after six months, he had to switch doctors again. Before the coronavirus outbreak, he was flying all the way to Los Angeles to get his prescription, and he still worries constantly about getting cut off again. The DEA and uh, the federal government has cut back Every single month, I've lost coverage, I haven't got my medication, I've lost a doctor. Since the backlash against opioids started, tens of thousands of pain patients have been forced to reduce their opioid dosages. And some, like Danny, have been cut off entirely, with little or no warning. Now, the coronavirus outbreak is making things even harder. Danny told us about it in a recent phone call. When this virus started, they were encouraging people to uh, stock up on medications where you can't stock up on on narcotics or uh, opioids, you know, you, you can't stock up. You can only get so much at a time. It's a dangerous situation. The FDA has warned doctors that taking patients off of opioids too quickly can cause, quote, uncontrolled pain, psychological distress, and suicide. And I, and I know that I'm just one of millions of people that are experiencing this. There are a lot of suicides due to pain, and a lot of it's because 
people can't get medications or their doctors quit prescribing medications or they can't get their medications filled. It's uh, it, These are desperate times for a lot of people. It's, it's really bad. Alternative therapies help some people manage pain, but those treatments don't work for everyone. For Danny Elliott, the only thing that numbs his pain is fentanyl. You know, people may listen to this and they may hear fentanyl. Well, they, because the media just constantly puts out fentanyl, 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 maybe they're thinking I'm taking drugs that's coming in from China or Mexico. You know, the media doesn't differentiate very well between pharmaceutical, you know, fentanyl medications versus this illicit synthetic fentanyl that's put into heroin and cocaine and meth and, you know, it's on the streets. If we could take Tylenol or Advil to do with our problems, we'd do it in a heartbeat. And there are a lot of caring physicians that would like to help, but they can't because they're in jail or they're threatened with jail. And it's absurd. What this podcast episode is talking about with Jeff Sessions is ARPO. ARPO was created in 2018. It's the Appalachian Region Prescription Opioid Strike Force. This is a strike force that was with FBI, OIG, DEA, and they really took an existing structure of Medicare fraud unit and they expanded it to go after prescription drugs utilizing data analytics with the PDMP, the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, and they flagged doctors. They targeted doctors based on different red flags and different algorithms and and things that we've discussed about before. So when ARPA was created, they've said all along that they have a program to help patients who are abandoned when these doctors are shut down, which sounds great, right? We've heard them mention it in different hearings, like before the finance committee, before Senate. Last week, we played a portion of a podcast that was on a podcast called Cover Two Resources, where the DEA agent was so proud of this program. This program is called the Opioid Rapid Response Program. Now, this program is supposed to do just that. They're supposed to go to the local states when they know that the feds are going to shut down a clinic or a doctor's office. And they're supposed to help patients find continuity of care. Uh, from my understanding, they're supposed to, in the, the, the state locally, is supposed to have this plan where they have doctors that they can refer to. Um, they can contact the emergency room and let them know to give bridge scripts and make sure these patients aren't going without their medication because they'll go through withdrawal and if they're people with addiction and being treated with, say, Suboxone, then most likely often will relapse. And if they're a pain patient, they might be set up for suicide or going to the streets to treat their pain and, and to die. And so this is a wonderful program, right? So before we talk too much more about this program, I'm going to play a small portion of what I played last week. It's a portion of this podcast from Cover Two Resources where they're explaining this this program that they have when a patient when a doctor is arrested i think the other part of arpo that was we spent a lot of time on was 60 individuals all in the same day in april and involved 10 you know several thousand patients drug addicted patients we asked ourselves early on what would be the impact of community if you took the pill mill out but you had the patients still drug-seeking patients moving around the area and that causes great concern and it caused the assistant attorney general and the u.s attorney's concern about these patients that would show up at the pill mill that day looking for their pill the prescription for the pills, but have nowhere to go. And so we spent a lot of time planning with our partners, FBI, HHS, the CDC, and, and principally state and local partners, health agencies at the local level, making sure that we had health professionals on site at each medical location for which the doctor had been arrested that morning to make sure that there was continued access of care for those patients. They were directed to legitimate doctors that could help them or they were then or they were then shifted to or treated that day. CDC was instrumental in having on-site 
scattered throughout mobile units that could treat patients the event of overdoses or potential overdoses. And I think that was part of a success story that we were very proud of too, continuing the access of care and doing what we did on law enforcement side on a responsible way, understanding that many of these patients would need help that day. And I think that was something we were very proud of. I'm going to read a quote from a DEA press release put out in 2019, also discussing this program. They're talking about some doctors that they had taken out, they're discussing ARPO and how it's expanded into 10 different regions. And they say, for any patients impacted by the law enforcement operations, DOJ, DEA, HHS, OIG, HHS's Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and all five state departments of health are deploying federal and state-level strategies to address patient harm and ensure continuity of care. Additional information regarding available treatment programs and where patients can turn for assistance is available. Some of you may know that I reached out to the director of the Opioid Rapid Response Program a year ago, March, and then again in March. And last year when I spoke to her, she was kind, she was okay, and she basically said, yes, this program is to help find continuity of care, but the problem is we can't find doctors to take these patients. Well, obviously, because they're afraid. They take these abandoned patients, then they're going to be flagged as a second prescriber in a, in a two-year period. And if any of these patients are on over 90 MME or are on what they consider a taboo, like combinations of medication, like opioid and benzo or opioid benzo and soma or pure formulations or whatever they have, the DEA has determined is a red flag. And um, we did an entire podcast about red flags. I suggest you listen to that to know what some of the other red flags are that DEA law enforcement has determined are red flags because right now law enforcement is running healthcare in this country completely. I don't know how many times we've heard from doctors. I can't help because I don't want to go to prison. And they're right. These doctors are going to prison. You know, this program, in my opinion, is a cover. I don't think it's ever worked. I don't think it's ever found a doctor for an abandoned pain patient. I just don't. I'm going to link in the show notes, uh, a more in-depth explanation of when I talked to the head of um, Opioid Rapid Response Program. And I do plan to have an entire episode just on it because you see it being talked about repeatedly for years, how amazing this program is. But when we talk to the patients from these doctors who have been shut down by ARPO, it's a completely different story. I mean, two different doctors. One was uh, just recently found guilty in his trial. And he didn't ever really have a lot of pain patients. And then local doctor was shut down. And then he inherited some of these patients and took them because he didn't want them to die. And so then he was targeted and arrested. And he said when, when they arrested him, he said to them, what are my patients going to do? Like, they're going to die. And they said to him, direct quote, your addicts will be just fine. Well, his patients weren't just fine, and several of them have already died going to the street to try to buy pills and overdosed or suicide. Another doctor that's also in prison, he was worried about it. Now, he had a doctor who were taking these patients that were being abandoned. What they told him, what the agent told him was, you need to tell that doctor to immediately stop 
all controlled substances for these patients. So it's kind of odd to me that they're testifying before Senate, they're putting in press releases, they're speaking on podcasts, claiming how amazing and impressive this program is and that they would never let patients go without continuity of care. But in real life, it's not even close. It's not even close to that. So like I said, I'm going to put in the show notes about ORP and what happened when we spoke in March when I reached out to the head again it wasn't really a great experience. She was angry, maybe frustrated. Maybe she's not able to do her job because they can't find doctors to help these patients. She admitted that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of abandoned patients because of law enforcement efforts. And one of the things she says that they tell people is to give them the suicide hotline. And I mean, maybe she was just frustrated because she knows she can't help patients and they're dying. But our government needs to stop shutting doctors down until they have a fully functioning program where they know what they're going to do to help these patients. I mean, at the very, very least, they at least need to have a doctor to take them on a very, very slow, compassionate taper. But they can't even do that. And so I'm going to read some tweets um, The Opioid Rapid Response Program, CDC, put out a tweet within the last few weeks talking about this program, again, how amazing it is, and a bunch of us responded, um, including Danny. So I'm going to read some of uh, Danny's tweets to this, and then I'm going to read some of his tweets from the last uh, week of his life that he was basically claiming he's done, that he can't find another doctor, and that's it. I also am going to read some tweets from Dr. Stefan Kertes. I'm going to play um, something from his YouTube channel shortly, but he was asking for help. He looked into it in California where Danny lived that what were they telling these patients to do, right? And all he could find was telling them to go to the ER. So I'm going to read these tweets and then I'm also going to read a little bit from Danny. He he had messaged me. We messaged back and forth a little, and I want to read some of his messages. Um, I'm not going to read all of them. He had asked me not to share some things, and I absolutely will respect that. But I want to read to you his comments about his thoughts of going to the ER or what life was like for him. On October 25th, 2022, CDC Injury Center tweeted the following. The Opioid Rapid Response Program helps reduce overdose risks by working with states to respond to disruptions in care, facilitate communication across agencies, and engage in overdose prevention activities. Many of us responded to them, and Danny responded saying, They did not have any help for patients after my doctor was arrested in 2018. They didn't do anything to help all of those patients. It took me six months to get my medical records, and then it was less than half of them. DEA is government-sanctioned organized crime that steals money and corrupts on patients who suffer. On November 1st, 2022, Danny tweeted, found out today that the good old DEA has shut down my pain doctor the third time I've lost a doctor to D-E-A-T-H. Even though I knew this would happen at some point, I'm stunned. Now I can't get any pain relief as a chronic pain patient, so I'm officially done with the U.S. healthcare system. For those pain patients who are still getting prescription pain meds, enjoy it while you can. DEA is laughing at the Supreme Court. As for me, only God knows what happens now. Sending love to all my chronic pain patient friends who are saving us to death. On November 3rd, Danny said, 
I don't have any options left other than to try to survive without relief. Traveling out of the country is not an option due to fixed income. Even if I found another doctor to prescribe, the DEA will stop them at some point. I can't go through all of that again. Someone asked him if he got help. He said it went exactly how I expected. No help at all. He wants me to go through withdrawal and then start Suboxone. Called 15 doctors in my area yesterday and this morning. 13 said they aren't taking pain patients and two haven't called me back. Guess I'll see if Kratom helps with the withdrawals and see if I can live with pain. He said four years ago, the same doctor was chosen by the Suboxone Pharma Company to be the lead prescriber of it in the general area where I live, though he stands to make money if I'd agree to take it. He's one of those doctors who's disrespectful and arrogant too. I'm so done with doctors. He tweeted to the CDC, you are killing me. This was in response to the CDC's tweet about the updated guidelines, talking about these recommendations promote patient-centered decision-making. Many people have reached out to me wanting to know why I haven't commented on them, but I want to say right now, I am not optimistic at all because nothing is going to change as long as the DEA still has these thresholds. Someone offered to try to help him find a doctor. He said, thank you very much, but I'm finished seeking doctors. The last four years have been too stressful, frustrating, and costly. All things difficult to manage with a TBI, the source of my chronic pain. It's out of my control, but I'm very grateful for the offer. Someone asked if he got any help. He said, thank you so much for your thoughtfulness. No, I haven't heard from anyone and I don't expect to. I appreciate your offer to try and help, but there's nothing that can be done. But I can't thank you enough for your kindness. God bless you. He said, it's the end of the road for me with doctors. Not sure what happens now, but it's going to be brutal. I'm sorry for you too. It's not fair. Six days ago, he said, Oh my God, I called for my phone appointment on Tuesday, apparently just a couple of hours after they took his license to prescribe because I was due for my next prescriptions. I'm now totally out. Tried 15 local doctors until Friday for help, but not a single one would even give me an appointment. Good luck. So that seemed to be the last tweet from Danny. Three days ago, after learning about Danny's death, Dr. Kertes tweeted the following thread, and I will include this in the show notes, the link to this so you can see for yourself. He said, here is DEA's complete safety plan for legacy pain patients left stranded when they just shut, shut down a California doctor who saw opioid refugees. It's a list of emergency rooms. DEA closed down a dock within days when I previously interviewed is dead by suicide and another is scrambling. Both the DEA and CDC have told the public that they will protect the safety of these legacy opioid receiving patients when law enforcement leaves them stranded. Where is the CDC's opioid rapid response program? Euler, a list of ERs, really? Writing in an EJM this year, Dr. Philip Coffin named both the risks to these patients and the collective responsibility to assure that law enforcement or revised standards of care do not cause their death. This is common sense. We want to thank Dr. Kertes for speaking up on behalf of pain patients. I'm going to read portions of Danny's direct messages to me. As I said earlier, he requested that I not share some of it, and I absolutely will not do that. But when I reached out to him, giving him some harm reduction resources, his response was, people don't need to worry because I couldn't find anything on the quote street. I've never been a drug user and don't even know where or how to find what I need. I have to go to California for doctor's appointments and stock up when I go and finding a few black market pills isn't going to help. And he went on to talk about 
the medication he was prescribed that he asked me not to discuss too much about. He said, my 50-year-old best bud who used to run on the fringes of street drugs died a couple of years ago, and I don't know anyone else who can help me find what I need, which is the strongest drug out there. So until that changes, and I don't know how it will, I'm safe from illicit fentanyl. But I feel like I'm dying from this unending, intolerable pain. Thank you for your concern and help. And then he went on to tell me how grateful he is for our advocacy, which I feel like I let him down. So then he went on to discuss his pain story, which you've already heard in the podcast and talked about his podcast. He said, my doctor from 2002 to 2018 was arrested and jailed, and now I'm on my third doctor since. I don't blame the current doctor for freaking out from the DEA agent's statement. The DEA guy lied. I hate the DEA. In fact, I now hate my own U.S. government for what they've done to me and all chronic pain patients. He went on to discuss the podcast, which I've played for you. I've tried to be a good advocate for all chronic pain patients, and that's what I did with the podcast. Dr. Kertes referred the Vice News podcaster to me. I asked him if he went through withdrawal when his medication was cut. I was trying to talk to him about Kratom. He said the withdrawal wasn't too bad because he kept him on one particular medication while stopping the other. And then this is important because as you heard Dr. Kertes was talking about what the California doctor, when they were shut down, what the plan was for continuity of care, which was the ER, right? He said, Danny said to me, and I will never use an ER for pain relief ever again. Didn't need to when I had all my meds, but even now, like so many others, I won't subject myself to the awful treatment that pain sufferers get in hospitals. He went on to say, I've tried Kratom, but don't like it. I'm holding on to life with my fingernails. That's why I decided to try to find street drugs. But like everything else these days, I failed. I just want to quit, but won't do that to my wife. She's the only reason I'm still here. He went on to say how he wished more people listened to his podcast. So I would ask of you, please share this podcast. I'm going to link Danny's full podcast in the show notes. Please share that. It's uh, pinned to his Twitter profile. That was his hope. That's what he wanted. He wanted people to know what other people are going through because the DEA is shutting down doctors. It's something that's not discussed in the media. It's something that nobody seems to hold the DEA or CDC responsible for. It doesn't matter how many of these patients end up dying. The end goal, the only metric that matters is lowered prescribing. Now that you heard Danny's tragic story, I want to play some quotes from some so-called opioid crisis experts, Andrew Kolodny, Roger Chow, and a journalist, Barry Meyer. You also will hear some quotes from Adrian Few Berman. She started the organization Farmed Out, which was started with litigation settlement funds from Suing Pharma that the attorneys general gave her to start this organization, which to me just appears to be a front for expert witness for lawyers, like just for anything that they can have to make more money like this. It's what we call the litigation narrative. Adrian Few Berman has been a serial expert witness just like the rest of them. But I want you to listen to what these people say and how they disgustingly just basically deny that there are suicides due to pain. Now, this is our second episode on suicide. The first one was Sonia Sloan. Her husband, Brent, sadly took his life after forced taper and she was able to successfully sue. But the more patients who are forced tapered and abandoned, the more suicides there are going to be. So we have enough evidence now to know that it is a lot more dangerous to cut patients off of opioids involuntarily than to leave them on them, even if they're what they call dangerous dose or dangerous combinations. So why do they still insist on doing this? 
I really believe they're just afraid of the DEA. And unless the DEA's algorithms and OIG's algorithms and things like care, as long as those are there, pulling from PDMP with data analytics, like I said, they're afraid and they have every right. I'm going to read a few quotes from this article in Cleveland Journal in March of 2013 called Painkiller Abuse Proposal Divides Healthcare Even in Same Hospitals. And it's discussing this pushback on prescribing and some doctors were concerned and they were afraid that this could hurt people. So I'm going to read this portion because um, they also interview Andrew Kaladny, but they're talking about this plan to relabel. So that's something Andrew Kaladny and Prop were pushing for is to relabel prescription opioids so that they could only be given for what was considered severe or even just for cancer pain. So they say, but some medical specialists worry that more harm than good could come if patients with long-term pain from injuries or medical conditions cannot get relief, especially if opioids are only recommended for patients in severe rather than moderate pain. A personal and subjective cost. Doctors might be able to prescribe off-label uses for select patients, depending on what the FDA decides, but this would restrict how drug companies market the painkillers and could make insurers reluctant to pay. It could lead to patients lying to their physicians about their pain in order to meet higher thresholds. And that was according to a letter submitted to the FDA by a Cleveland Clinic pain management nurse and researcher. Nonsense, responds Dr. Andrew Kaladny, a Brooklyn, New York psychiatrist who treats addiction and is the president of a group lobbying for more restrictive opioid prescribing. He says the painkillers are over and used for purposes far beyond what research supports. He called the suicide claim totally bogus, saying suicide can result from the severe anxiety and panic attacks associated with drug withdrawal, a problem that stems from addiction to painkillers, he said, not failure to treat pain appropriately. We're not trying to take these people's opioids away from them. We're trying to prevent new starts, he told the plain dealer. So let's talk about that for a minute. Now, this was almost a decade ago. And Andrew Kalodny was saying, nah, there's no such thing as suicide due to pain. It's just suicide due to withdrawal. And the media bought it because that's they repeat that over and over and over to the point where people think, oh, just give them a bridge script for a couple of days and they'll be fine. Get them through withdrawal. They'll be fine. Except evidence doesn't support that, right? The evidence shows that it's really up to six months or up to two years after people lose their medication that they're dying, that they're going to the street or committing suicide. Because evidence also shows the number one reason people even go to the street or so-called abuse opioids is to self-treat pain. It's not to prevent withdrawal, a small percentage. Withdrawal is uncomfortable, but you get through it after a few days. It's the pain that's causing people to go to the street or to kill themselves. Now, Andrew Kalani was like, oh, well, we're not trying to take their pills away. We're just trying to prevent new people from going on them. Well, If you look at the people that the DEA are shutting down, they're forcing these people to stop their medication. I can't tell you how many people that have reached out to us that their medication has been stopped either because their doctor was shut down by the DEA, the doctor was forced to retire, the doctor was told they have to get to under a certain threshold, or the doctor's just afraid. And they're like, we can't prescribe. And I don't blame the doctors. I used to. I don't. Because doctors have a right to be afraid. So you just heard Andrew Kolodny's quote about suicide being bogus due to pain. Now, I'm going to play a quote from Dr. Roger Chow. Carrie Judy, who is my partner in researcher in all of this, sent this to me yesterday. I had forgotten about this clip. But let's hear what he had to say about suicide. One of the criticisms is the guidelines may be contributing to undertreated pain, especially in chronic 
pain patients on high-dose long-term opioids. And there have been some anecdotal reports of an increase in suicides among pain, uh, pain patients since the release of the guidelines. Do you think there's any merit to those allegations, I guess? Well, I mean, the suicide thing is, is tough. Of course, we wouldn't hate to have anybody, um, you know, um, commit suicide or feel that way. Um, but um, I think you have to step back a little bit. I mean, first of all, that data is anecdotal. Um, secondly, um, there are over 15,000, you know, deaths attributed to prescription opioid overdoses every year. Um, and so there's, that's a huge burden. And um, I don't think anybody's saying that we have anything, you know, close to that number of intentional suicide deaths as a result of the guidelines. So, you know, I, I, I think that the, the scope of the overdose issue um, is tremendous and, and must be addressed. Um, and we don't want anybody to be, you know, committing suicide or, or, or feeling that despondent. But you have to remember that chronic pain is um, uh, extremely, you know, people, depression is extremely common in people with chronic pain and suicide is common in people with chronic pain. It's quite hard to attribute it um, to the pain medications per se. Um, and, 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 it's, and it's highly likely, actually, that a number of the um, uh, overdose deaths um, that occurred in people with prescription opioids are actually due to, un to intentional overdoses, i.e. suicide attempts. So I think it's very hard to say anything with certainty about what the effects are. Um, but I will say that we need to treat people's depression appropriately and identify people who are suicidal and get them the help that they need. Um, tapering isn't necessary or appropriate in all patients, and we need to be cognizant of that. Uh, and we also need to support patients through the tapering process and help them, you know, um, get the help they need and um, do it at the speed which, you know, we can do it safely and effectively. I'm going to play a quote from Barry Meyer. Barry Meyer is a journalist, author. He wrote a book called Painkiller about Purdue and OxyContin. And uh, he spoke four years ago at Stanford Medicine's Health Policy Forum. And I'm just going to play a few minutes of him speaking. I remember when I was working on this back in 2001, I used to get a lot of hate mail. And, and a lot of it was from people saying, like, I hope you or your family experience, someone in your family experience the type of pain I'm experiencing and you suffer. It's like very lovely stuff that, that would come in over, over the transom. Or, you know, do you realize that you are causing people to commit suicide and that there are patients out there committing suicide because they're not, you know, they're not getting their pain medication? I'm going like, I don't think so. Next, I'm going to play a clip from Dr. Stefan Kertes's YouTube channel. Um, it's called Dr. Adrian Few Berman Argues Against Research on Suicides After Prescription Opioid Stoppage. Many of you know that Dr. Kertes is running a study out of uh, University of Alabama about suicides. I believe he first spoke to Lalina Peacock, who is an amazing pain patient advocate, and I'm so blessed to have her with me in my state of North Carolina. And she was the first person I ever saw to record patient suicides and to just 
selflessly give her of herself trying to talk people out of suicide who were having their medication stopped and became suicidal. Thankfully, Dr. Kertes um, spoke to Lelina and then there's another pain patient advocate in Fuqua who is helping him with this study in the University of Alabama. Well, he had presented this, I'm not sure how long ago, and Dr. Adrian Few Berman, who was a prop member with Andrew Kolodny, Anna Lemke, Jane Valentine, you know, our favorites. She was there listening. And I guess she didn't like it so much because she pushed back on the idea of even studying suicide. You know, we just heard Kolodny say, well, that's bogus. And Barry Meyer say, yeah, I don't think so. And Roger Chow even say, yeah, they're just anecdotal. So it doesn't matter how many pain patients are like, people are killing themselves. People are telling us they're going to kill themselves. Yeah, none of that matters, right? So let's listen to Dr. Few Berman and what she has to say after Dr. Kertes made his presentation about this study. that are 100% available to them. 
I will say this. I personally have reviewed the medical charts on two patients who are in the media. One of them is the person whose wife bought him a gun. I'm glad to have people handed it to the article. And I both reviewed the medical chart in detail, had an expert review it, interviewed the individual, and had signed consent to publish about it in the Health Affairs blog in January. This is a separate case, which I published in Slate last summer. Uh, I have personally been the person called upon to remediate individuals who are suicidal or who have actually shot themselves uh, and did not die. Um, and therefore, I feel fairly convinced, having reviewed the charts of those people, that I know what was going on. Moreover, I'm in continuous contact with physicians who are all addiction trained, who have tons of expertise in opioids and dependence. Those physicians who I'm in contact with basically write me notes every week saying it's a disaster zone with the number of patients who are traumatically harmed. I published a case first in the Hill under a um, changed gender as a female. And then when I got official VA permission, I published that case in the uh, meeting proceedings for the Association for Medical Education Research on Substance Abuse. That case was medical harm, not suicide. Um, but in any case, I think I've made the case that the CDC guideline says, doesn't say to do something. The evidence doesn't support doing something. This thing is being done. There's no way you can get, there is a study of involuntary opioid uh, reduction and the Veterans Administration, according to Lovejoy, 80% or so of opioid discontinuations are initiated by the clinician, not the patient. And that same team published a separate paper profiling the onset of suicidal action, not necessarily resulting in death, or suicidal ideation in about, I'm thinking about 8 to 12%. What you said about pain also being a thing that induces suicidality is true. O opioid use. Opioid use is associated with suicidality. You have three, can't leave that out. All, you have three things that are all potentially simultaneously associated with harm. Pain itself, opioid dependence, the dependence itself, and the event, however we wish to interpret it clinically, as resurgent pain or untreated opioid dependence in patients who are having opioids taken away. I would point out, you heard from Bruce, if someone is diagnosed with opioid use disorder, there's no one here saying that forced tapers are the way to go. Right. For people who have long-term pain or high doses of opioids, the form that their dependence takes can be very benign, it can be rather unbenign, and it can qualify as full-fledged addiction. To assert that all of those people should also be subject to the very thing that we would never countenance for someone with diagnosed addiction seems to me quite bizarre when there's only a trial with a 91% failure rate to suggest it might be dangerous. So I take your point that we should document and study, and I've run two teams trying to document through health systems records events that happen over opioid discontinuation. So I spend hours every week in discussion trying to pull the data together. That's what we should do. But the people who have much larger resources to investigate outbreaks of things of concern could do that, and they're not doing it. And I don't know, but can you defend not investigating? Yeah, because you haven't shown there's an outbreak. Nobody's shown there's an outbreak yet. So that's what, you know, so, we use government resources to, to foresee something, you know, after there's actually a signal. And a TV, you know, a TV show and a case here and there is not necessarily... So the note I received was about 54 where the names and identifiers were known. I personally witnessed. The physicians that I work with have witnessed. And I've personally reviewed cases. And the question I would have for you is at what point 
does something go from being, it almost seems like a little bit of a, a double standard here, to sort of, it's not an outbreak until you have large databases to show it, but we can't commit the resources to investigate until you have large databases to show it. It's not so large databases, documented cases, so I'm well, glad you're writing, right? Two, right? in the press, after records of review. And that's nothing compared to the number of people on opioids who commit suicide. And one of the things that you left out is opioid-induced depression, which is... I, I would say you've misconstrued if you thought I wanted to minimize the harms from opioids. I, that, that was, that's a misapprehension of what I was trying to say. There are significant harms that I tried to say up front about the, of the nature of prescribing opioids. If you can avoid them, please do. There are many, many harms associated with them, although there are some people where they naturally are the thing that has to be used. But um, my goal here really was not to suggest that there was not a massive amount of harm occurring as a result of both prescriptions and illicit opioids ongoing for the last 15 years. If anybody heard that, they missed my message. That was not what I was trying to say. What I am saying is there's a separate population or a related population that is traumatized now. I wouldn't have spent two years working on this day and night unless I was quite convinced it had many others who are all addiction trained who are working with me who feel this is a serious issue. If you listened to our fourth podcast in the series of PDMP and Narc's Care, you'll hear someone from ARPO discuss that they want their arrests to have a deterrent effect. They said if other doctors look at that arrest and think, well, I don't want to prescribe, that that's a good thing. But no one ever talks about the patients that are affected by it. Our country is so focused on this so-called opioid crisis and they're causing more deaths. You know, we've heard Maya and Jen Oliva address this issue, but there is always going to be a top percent of prescribers, like say top 5%, and they take them out, then there will be another top 5% and another and another and another. At what point is it enough? Like at what point do you stop going after doctors and threatening doctors? Because right now, it seems people's lives are collateral damage just to get prescribing down. I think it's more important to them to lower prescribing and to get doctors out in order to to lower prescribing. And again, no one is measuring patient outcomes. This opioid rapid response program is supposed to be doing that. They admitted that they can't find doctors for abandoned patients and they were going to pay someone, I think, $16 million. They wanted a research or consulting company to research it, to figure out why won't doctors take these patients? Are you kidding me? You're going to pay that amount of money? It's obvious. I can give you the answer. Doctors are abandoning patients and won't take new ones because your PDMP metrics and algorithms and red flags that the DEA put in there makes it very dangerous to take abandoned patients. I think this is the crux of the problem right now. The CDC is saying we need personalized care. That's not going to help anything. There's 38 state laws already made based on these thresholds. I just listened to an Arkansas pain committee meeting where they talked to doctors who are so-called high prescribers. And they actually said the CDC guidelines mean nothing when the DEA is still using their thresholds. And they are. Again, we offer our sincerest condolences to Danny Elliott's family. Please listen to his full podcast that's linked in the show notes. Danny really told me that he wanted people to hear what was happening to patients when doctors were being shut down by the DEA because these patients are collateral damage and 
they're really out there to fend for themselves. And this can happen to anybody on any day. And pain patients are terrified and they have a right to be terrified also. If your doctor has been shut down by the DEA and you haven't received any kind of help, email ORRP at cdc.gov. I was told this is exactly what their program is for. Call your local state health department, ask for the trusted contact, ask for the patient advocate who is assigned to help abandon patients due to law enforcement actions. If you do this, let me know how it goes. Reach out to me at Bev at the doctorpatientforum.com or Claudia at the doctorpatientforum.com. Just a quick disclaimer that what you hear in our podcast is not to be considered medical or legal advice. We will always provide links in the show notes to give evidence for what we are saying.